I want to invite our next storyteller up. It's Kent Lotus. And uh, as always, I'm asking, what's the thing I want to say about Kent to help introduce you to him? And he's going to share about himself, so you'll get a taste of him. But here's what I want to say. Kent is my friend, and he wants to be your friend too. <laughs> Kent, come on up. So my story this morning is about a really amazing wedding I went to last year, right? A guy is going to tell a story about a wedding. It's, it's weirder than that, though. It's, it's uh, deeper. Um, it's a story about how God, uh, no, no spoilers, you'll see. Uh, so this time last year, uh, myself, Karen, and my oldest son, Gabriel, flew down to Brazil for my goddaughter Amanda's wedding. I'm at the stage in life now where people that I used to watch run around in diapers are getting married. Um, I was really looking forward to this trip, not just the wedding, uh, but I really needed a vacation. I was tired physically, I was emotionally exhausted, uh, but most of all, I just felt spiritually empty. The last couple of years had been really hard. Uh, my family life had gotten really complicated. Uh, I'd lost a job, had to reboot my career, which by the way, Ross Lehman helped with. Thanks, Ross. Uh, and then my dad was diagnosed with cancer and went through treatment and surgery and eventually passed away. Um, and then I was point person for memorial services and funerals and kind of helping my mom into her new stage of life, uh, being alone. Um, my marriage was running on fumes. But the worst part is that throughout all this, there were so many long stretches of time where God just felt distant. I'd look around, you know, day after day, and just wondering, God, where, where are you in the middle of all this, these hard times? And somewhere in there, uh, a friend of me clued me into uh, this podcast called The Liturgist that I've grown, grown really fond of. Peter and I are a fan of them. And in one of their episodes, uh, Mike McCarg and Michael Gungor talked about what it means to hear the voice of God and how uh, he speaks to us in scripture, in prayer, through uh, the words of our friends, a lot of times just through creation around us, and a lot of it is just like the day-to-day -day events in our lives. And how quite often the Word of God is really just sort of an impression or a thought or something that sticks with us. And so my prayer as I was on the plane headed down to Brazil was that somehow this vacation would be a time where I could recapture that sense of God's presence, His Word, His meaning in my life. So, Amanda, my goddaughter, she's an event planner, and she had been working on this wedding for years, and it was a destination wedding. I guess that's a thing these days. This was a whole weekend. Everybody, uh, the wedding party, the friends, the family, and the bride and groom, three days at this little beachside hotel, um, which was pretty awesome. But uh, the final part of getting there involved a four-hour drive 
uh, down a road from where we were, my, we grew up, to this beachside town. Uh, so it was me, Karen, Gabriel, and uh, our best friend, Eliani, the, bri the uh, bride's mom. And it was on the drive there that things started to get weird. Uh, most of you know I grew up in Brazil, where my parents were missionaries, and that road that we were driving on that night was a stretch of road that my dad drove dozens and dozens of times in the course of his ministry. And I just got to thinking about all the times that he'd driven that road, sometimes with uh, us in the back seat, sometimes all by himself, and wondering, you know, is this even worth it? What am I doing in this foreign country, learning this foreign language, putting up with these weird people? Is any of this worth it? Uh, is this next generation going to benefit from this at all? Will they even remember what I've done? Will they carry this forward? And I found myself wishing that I could just whisper back in time and say, Dad, it's, it's worth it. Look what I'm doing right now. The second and third generation are, are being blessed by the work that you and your friends are doing. It's worth it. And all the rest of that evening, thinking about this drive and the cities I was dry, you know, going through, I just started feeling God speaking to me about how he blesses the generations. So I woke up Friday morning, uh, and this is on the east coast of Brazil, so we get to see the sun come up. Um, and I sat out on the little deck journaling and praying and thinking about weddings in the Bible and how they're a picture of what heaven is like how we the church are the bride and Jesus is the groom, and, and how weddings back in Bible times were these joyful things that stretched on for days, just like we were doing at this little resort. Uh, and then, again, I just got this impression, God reminding me of uh, his desire for joy and celebration in our lives. And right about then, I looked down at the beach, and uh, I saw, saw a, a fishing boat coming in with their net. And this is this, is this thing that uh, is still a thing in Brazil. The boat comes in, they, they put a net out beyond the surf and then just pull it in. That's something that is, they still do. So I, I went down to the beach to just watch this. Watch them over the course of an hour, slowly pull the net up to the beach, bring all the fish up onto the sand, sort through the fish that they could keep and sell to the tourists, the other ones they would throw back into the water. And the whole time, I was just filled with this sense of, of God's presence and his desire to, to bless this weekend, to, to fill uh, Amanda and Gabriel's, uh, the, the groom's life with blessing. It was just this weird moment of, of glory. And then all day long, People were arriving and showing up with their suitcases and bags, and the rest of us would be sitting around, and you know, the next people would come in. So there'd be a whole other round of stories and hugs and laughter, and come on in, pull up a chair, grab a beer, waiter, more food. Um, and this is where I started noticing this mood I was in, where it seemed like every little detail was just filled with meaning and glory. Uh, it seemed holy. And it wasn't so much what I was seeing, it was how I was seeing it. And this went on all day and into the evening. And then the next morning was, was the actual wedding day. And Amanda, bless her heart, had set things up so that the hairstylist and the manicurist and a seamstress were on site setting up shop in the hotel rec room. 
So all day long, all the bridesmaids and ladies are running around in their robes and slippers. She had robes made for everybody. Uh, getting all glorious and pretty in the hairs and curlers, but then all of a sudden it's, uh, oh, look at you. Wow, where'd you come from? It was wonderful. Of course, the guys were mostly sitting around shooting pool and having a beer and making all sorts of rude and appropriate jokes about the groom. Um, it was just hilarious and joyful and electric. Um, it was almost as if the anticipation was better than the event itself. And again, I felt God just kind of whispering me, this is a glimpse of heaven. Just sit down, unburden yourself, and, and party. And this is where the weirdest thing of the whole weekend happened. Uh, the wedding itself was a couple miles down the road, so we all had to get into the cars and drive a few miles. And right about the time we were doing this, everybody in their fancy clothes and the, the bride and groom and their, their outfits, we look up in the sky, and there was a ring rainbow. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. It's this really rare event. It's not a rainbow off an arc in, on the horizon against clouds. It's a rainbow centered around the sun, and in this case, it was a clear blue sky. I have pictures to prove this. And apparently, science can explain it. Something about ice crystals at high elevations, blah, blah, blah. The timing was just too perfect, so I'm calling it a miracle. The wedding itself was, was amazing, uh, meeting old friends I hadn't seen sometimes in decades, um, watching my best friend walk his daughter down the aisle, uh, watching the groom, who was also, uh, the groom's brother was the pastor who was doing the ceremony, it couldn't finish a sentence without crying. So we had to put up with this guy just bawling his way through the whole message. Uh, there was this wonderful moment where the little ring-bearer boy, who's about Emmett Scheid's age, makes it halfway down the aisle, and then he starts noticing the flowers. And he, he stops and looks at the flowers, and he looks back up the aisle at his mom and dad, who are kind of shooing him up to the front with the ring, right? And he's just like, oh, look at these flowers. And he goes over and takes one. And then runs all the way back to his dad to show his dad this beautiful flower. And like, oh yeah, that's a nice flower, but you run back along now. And I'm thinking, you know, if Amanda had scripted this, it wouldn't have worked out this way. It was just glorious. Um, and then, of course, there was the dancing. This was a pretty young and hip crowd, so the dancing was amazing. So I took off my curmudgeon hat and joined in the fun. Uh, it was all very awkward and foolish, but it was glorious. And, and the whole time, I could just feel God smiling down on this gathering, on this couple, on the promise of their generation, and, and me getting to be a part of that. And finally, the very end of the night was kind of the, the final kicker for me. Um, we had to organize a motorcade to get everybody back to the hotel, and the way things worked out, we filled up all the cars and left the parking lot, and I wound up being the last person in the motorcade, so I literally was the last person to leave the party. And again, it was just this final little word from God, like, you get to be uh, watching over and blessing this couple, this next generation. And uh, it, was, it was just wonderful. A couple weeks later, um, I was journaling, and I wrote this. So I'm, I'm back home from the wedding, 
back to normal life. God, I don't want to lapse back into normal. Some part of that weekend needs to stay with me, to change me, to carry forward, to spread out. I don't dare try to do this by my own will. Your hand, your presence, your word needs to work that in me. Open my soul to accept and to embrace and to become this new thing, this new creature. That was a year ago, and all I can say is he is answering that prayer. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Timothy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 in the New English Translation. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 6. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was leaving from Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teachings, nor to occupy themselves with myths and interminable genealogies. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have strayed from these and turned away to empty discussion. The word of the Lord. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and we are starting a new series today called Generation to Generation from Fear to Faithfulness, and uh, today's Palm Sunday, and Jesus is entering Jerusalem, riding in on a borrowed donkey, and he's going to be accused and arrested, tortured, mistried, and killed. Quite a road trip. You know, it's the Series of unfortunate events. It's the worst week you could have ever not planned. And yet Jesus planned this. This was planned from before the foundation of the world, is what the Bible teaches, that this was not a reaction to something that happened and God saying, oops, I got to fix this. But this was the way that it was always going to be. And so in full knowledge, Jesus steps into his mission, his purpose for being on earth. And the main lesson of Palm Sunday is us misinterpreting what the whole point of what Jesus' mission was about. His message and his mission was about the redemption of the world, about how to love humanity, how to get the Holy Spirit in us, to cleanse us from all of our sin, and to save us from the inside out, knowing full well we can't be saved from the outside in. It's our very nature, our heart that has to change. So this is the uh, main point of Palm Sunday and of Jesus' life and the reason he died. 
Uh, we're starting a series today that is dealing with this idea of the passing of the baton. From generation to generation, how do we transmit this message and mission of Jesus Christ? You see right away in verse 1, look at what it says. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith. And what we see in these first two verses in the opening is that Paul is very intent on communicating a kind of sequence. There is a chain of command here. There is the command of God the Father. That's number one. And from him flow the work and mission of Jesus Christ, his son. And from Jesus came this apostle or the sent one of Christ, Paul. And then now Paul is transmitting, passing the baton to who? To Timothy, his child in the faith. So there is a passing on from generation to generation the faithful mission of Jesus Christ, which he enacted throughout his life, but culminated in what we today call Passion Week. Paul was near the end of his life. The books of First and Second Timothy represent the final words of Paul. Uh, this series is focusing on the uh, leadership aspect, passing of the baton from God the Father to Jesus, to Paul the Apostle, to Timothy, his son in the faith, and now on to us, generation after generation past Timothy. Um, and his uh, second letter and final letters, uh, Second Timothy, is really his final words from his deathbed. And that series will be called Deathbed, where we get to really contemplate what the universe looks like from the vantage point of your deathbed. Yesterday here, we had a packed house, standing room only. We ran out of chairs uh, and people sort of running around to try to find uh, chairs. It was a wonderful, beautiful service for Ross, uh, Ross Lehman. And uh, I was mindful uh, that he lived his life. He conveyed his message with his life. And the room uh, consisted of people standing in the circle that he drew. It was all different kinds of people from all different places. A broad spectrum of people gathered together, all experiencing this one message that Ross was about. And it was, who really was Ross? What did he have to say? What did he not have to say? Because that message was being conveyed with or without his consent. And that's the question we're asking today. What is the main thing that you understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are called to transmit to the next generation? So I was thinking about this idea of transmitting um, this gospel message to the next generation. And um, it dawned on me that Jesus, if he was here, he would not be reading articles or books on how to reach millennials. <laughs> there are millions of dollars being made on people who claim to have cracked the code on how to reach millennials. This is true in the secular workplace. This is true in the Christian world. We're all trying to figure out who are these people who were born 1980 and later. 
What are they about? What's their value system? How do they think? How do they come to church? Why don't they come to church? What do we have to do? And the idea isn't like, how do we contort ourselves beyond uh, truth to try to accommodate millennials? But it's how would Jesus reach millennials? You know, the thing that's like amazing about Jesus' ministry is that he commanded such a broad spectrum of people. Old people, young people, Christians, you know, people who believed in him, those were first Christians, people who didn't believe in him, Jews, Gentiles, sick, healthy, the lame, the walking, the rich, the poor, the female, the male, by day, by night, they all came to him. He had the absolute perfect message and mission and strategy, and he would not be scratching his head right now. You know, and here we are, God the Father to Jesus, to Paul, to Timothy, to us, and now we have to reach the millennials. And the funny thing is, you know, millennials are now old. They're in their 30s. You realize the generation under them, I think some articles are calling them Generation Z, they're not wondering how to crack the millennial code. They don't care about millennials because they're the center of the universe now. And there are articles about those guys. We're learning that they're swinging the other way, and they are by far, since the 40s, one of the most conservative generations to ever walk the face of the earth while you're still alive. Did you know that? That's what's happening. That's the trend. They're coming back home. How do you reach the next generation? By default, you will be part of the push or pull factor in the baton passing game. You know, either they will be repelled by you to something else, or they will be drawn to something because of you. You will play a push or pull part in how people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just by default, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to be deliberate about it. You are going to play a part in this. And what's the part you want to play? Three quotes. One by Stephen Covey. Guys know him. Uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what's your main thing? What's your gospel? What is Jesus Christ about? Why did he come to earth, if he did, sent by God to die on a Roman cross? And then why was he raised from the dead? Why did he give us the Holy Spirit? Why do we exist as an organized group of people today? What is the main thing? What's the message that's being transmitted to people who are observing us? What do they believe you are about? Second quote. Greg McCowan, wonderful author, great book called Essentialism. I devoured this book. I read it in two days. Essentialism is not about how to get more things done. It's about how to get the right things done. It doesn't mean just doing less for the sake of less either. It is about making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at our highest point of contribution by doing only what is essential. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It remained uh, it meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years before it was pluralized to priorities. Live by design, not by default. 
what is your essential? What are the one, two, or maybe three things that you believe are the most important things in life? And how can you align your life, your acts, your speech, according to what you believe is the main thing? A third quote, John Maxwell, leadership guru. He says, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. Paul says the same thing here, verse 3 to 6. As I urged you when I was learning, leaving Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus. He's really beginning to uh, get his uh, you know, ducks, in or, ducks in order here. Stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teachings. He wants to up the immune system to make sure the main thing stays the main thing and the pure thing stays pure nor to occupy themselves with myths and interminable genealogies. Interminable means endless. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have strayed from these and turned away to empty discussion. So here it is. This is the main thing as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned. The redemptive plan of God. That's number one. Now that's content. But he goes on to say this content has to come from a people who are. That is, they have to embody this redemptive plan. They have to be on the receiving end of this redemptive plan and be transformed by it. It has to naturally emanate them. Paul is not saying, shine your light. He's saying, let your light shine. Because if you shine your light, that's obnoxious. But if you're letting your light shine, it's natural. And people are drawn to it, right? So the redemptive plan of God as embodied by a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so it's not just the message, but it's also the messenger. Together is the message. Paul said this, that you are our letters. Paul's not just writing letters. He is writing on the human heart because that's really the message. It's not, never, it's not what you say, is it? As much as we like it to be do as I say, not as I do, it's not what we say, and it's not even what we do. It's who we are. It's how our heart is. Our heart has to be pure. We can't have conflicting agendas or duplicitous motives. Those things smell. People sniff that out. Pure heart and a good conscience. Your life has to be in alignment. And then a sincere faith. There has to be a kind of fear and trembling the way you're working out your faith. Anything shy of that, shy of these standards, and the people begin to say, oh, now you're just a push factor. You're pushing me away to something else. You're not pulling me towards the gospel you are preaching. And check this out. If you don't keep the main thing, the main thing, and you don't understand that the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, if you don't do that, this is the alternative. Myths, interminable genealogies, useless speculations, and empty discussion. Because there is a lot of uh, trivial matters 
that just fill the atmosphere. This is what everybody's breathing in. And so it's easy to get sucked into this nonsense, the empty discussion, the useless speculation, the non-major things, the minor things of life. And so you do A or B happens. Now that sounds simple, uh, but we do have to figure out how to do that. Here's another McCowan quote. If you don't prioritize your life, somebody else will. If you don't prioritize the gospel, somebody else will. If you're not clear, somebody else will muddy it for you. Bonnie Ware is a uh, end-of-life nurse. She spends the last 12 weeks, up to the last 12 weeks of people's lives, and uh, she's a hospice nurse, and so people have very interesting conversations with her, and she started recording what were the main categories of conversations she was having with people on their deathbed. And this quote is uh, her summary of the main thing, the majority thing that people talk about as they're dying. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ as you understand it? What is the gospel that you want to die for? What is the priority, singular, that you want to push forward? Is it about God's redemptive plan as embodied by you? with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And if not, then you're moving from the pull to the push. A couple of stories. Uh, thinking about my parents and what I inherited from them, and Susie and I have been having probably the, the most productive season in our marriage. Uh, at year 20, we're having the most productive season in terms of having conversation about how much she needs to change. And, uh, <laughs> and she's really responding well. The spirit is moving. There's a revival in the Sung family. <laughs> Been thinking about, um, or the opposite is true. I'm not sure. You decide. But here's what I'm uh, learning about our families of origin. You know, I'm going to talk about my family. One thing that I really have received the message on about my parents is the foundational nature of the marriage relationship, that there's no parenting technique that's greater than the love between husband and wife, because all of the love and anxiety and the negativity flows over, and that's the air that the kids are breathing in and out. And so no matter what technique you employ, it's second to your marriage. You know, that's good news or bad news. It simplifies it, but it's really hard, you know? But I just remember seeing this uh, incredible support from my mom to my dad, this respect, and then my dad really acting as a protector for my mom. You couldn't yell at mom. You know, we like to be our basest selves with mom. And my dad was like, nope, can't do that. You gotta love your mom if I'm in the room. And my uh, mom always supported my dad. There was just this pride she had in her husband. And I just, I'm, I'm just used to that. There's like muscle memory there, you know? Uh, another thing I inherited from my parents is work ethic. Like, I never saw my parents like sitting. This week, somebody offered us two well-worn lazy chairs. 
And so I was looking at these lazy chairs and I was going, what would I do with these? And I realized, like, I don't like sitting. Even when I'm at my desk writing these sermons, I'm walking at my standing desk with a treadmill under it. You know, and if I'm reading something, I like to be listening to it or reading it while I'm walking or something. But I can't just sit. And I was like, where did I get that from? Why am I always in motion? And I got that from my parents. They're always in motion. Just really strong work ethic. And then the third thing I got from them is they're entrepreneurial. You know, me and my sisters, three sisters, we all kind of started stuff all the time. That's just sort of in our blood. And these are the things they transmitted to me. Other things they transmitted to me uh, are fear. There's a kind of paranoia in the immigrant culture. You know, we're just afraid, right? Because things can happen. We have less margin. We're vulnerable. And so there's a kind of double-checking, triple-checking everything. And I fear that. I feel that fear, and I have to try to reject it, differentiate from it. And I came from a family that's overly direct. Do you know this about me? but it can have a wounding effect, right? And so I want to sand that down a little because I like being the counterculture to the passive-aggressive, indirect communication style of the Northwest. However, no unnecessary roughness, you know? So I was thinking about the church I grew up in. I really appreciated their focus on Christ, I really appreciated their focus on prayer. They really believed in doing life together. They were generous givers, generous. And they knew how to suffer well. That's the immigrant church. On the flip side, they were really materialistic. Because when you are an immigrant, material possessions really sort of signal God's favor. So like nice shoes, nice bags, nice cars. That's what I grew up around. And then you kind of have to showcase it on Sundays when you're, uh, the people giving you social credit are there to bear witness to God's favor and then agree with you that God loves you more than anybody else. <laughs> so that was part of it. And they were really good at manipulating through shame. I'm trying to reject that. And there was a lot of legalism in the church. And so good and bad, the package deal. But the point is, we inherit stuff. And it's our job to decide what's the main thing and what's not. What have you inherited from the church before you? And what do you see as you look at the generations that are coming after you? How are they experiencing the gospel through you? What are you embodying? What do they believe you care about? Do they believe you have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? So the process looks something like this. Order, disorder, and reorder. So the previous generation gives us order. Here's what you believe. Here's what you think. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you should never do. Great. It's clean. It's neat. It's packaged for us. And then we have to say, blow it up. We have to create disorder. We have to deconstruct it and say, what do I believe, though? How do I experience the world? What's true for me? And you enter a season of disorder or responsibility where you get to break it down, and then you enter a season of reorder where you're beginning to piece it together and say, this is who I am, this is who I'm not, this is how I see things, this is what I embrace, this is what I reject. This is a normal process of maturity and development that every person goes through. 
That's what the rebellious stage of the teenage years are about. It's your differentiation from your parents. You reject their order, you live in disorder, and then you reorder your life. And you say, this is how I want to raise my kids. This is how I want to do money. Here are the songs I want to sing. Here are the clothes I want to wear. You become your own. Here's what the next generation, according to Google, uh, is observing and listening and taking notes on about the current church here in America. Number one, they believe that Christians in this country right now are about nationalism. It's Christian nationalism. It's racism. It's sexism. It's homophobia. We're oriented around power. We want control, and we're self-preserving. I did not pen these words myself. Okay, another set, another research showed these words. The church is hypocritical. We're delusional. We're self-serving. It's an escapism or a crutch. We have blinders on. We have narrow minds. We're hateful. We exclude people. And we have a wounding effect on people. We turn people away. Okay? So basically, what they're saying is that Christianity, in, its, in all its organized glory, it's just more human nature. It's not better or worse than other organizations. It's just more organized, and it's cloaked, and it's legitimized and franchised, but it's still just human nature, not divine nature. This is what they're saying. This is what they're seeing. This is the message that some people are getting. Now, you can disagree with this, because this is not all I see. Being in the church, I see so much more than just this. But I do wonder, have we majored on some minors? Have we distorted the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way? Have we shifted beyond God's redemptive plan? How is the state of my heart? Is it pure or does it have other motives? Is my faith sincere or is it self-serving? How is my conscience? And these are questions I think we ought to ask individually and collectively. If you, don't reject, if you don't believe this and you reject this reading of the church or the state of Christianity today here in America, what's your gospel? What's the battle you will fight for? Why would people be drawn to you? Now, you can judge the generations that are younger than you if you want to, but the fact remains it's on you to pass the baton. It's your missionary work that you're invited to. How will you contextualize the gospel? How will you package it in a way that makes sense for future generations? An example of this is C.S. Lewis. During the 1940s, C.S. Lewis, as a single man who had the luxury of living in his head, and he did that better than most of us, he wrote a book uh, called The Problem of Pain. And the large critique of this book, The Problem of Pain, is that it was not accurate to reality. Lots of critics felt that this book was too neat and tidy. It, it talked about suffering and pain in a trite way that people who were actually suffering and in pain could not readily relate to. This was the major critique of this book. And so uh, an example, a quote from this book, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
When you are hurting, when you're in pain, God's shouting at you. God's present in your life. Now deal with it and stop your complaining about whatever trivial little pain you're going through. This is how those who are hurting heard it. And then 20 years later, he's not single anymore. He was married. His wife died. He entered into a season of great pain and inquiry of the soul. And he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And he wrote this in that book. When your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him is uh, coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. So C.S. Lewis inherited order, and it was this very neat and clean God. There was no question, no hold, no tension. And then he actually experienced life, and he experienced suffering and pain and loss and death. And then he's able to say, you know, actually, uh, it's not that you hear God's megaphone. It's that you hear nothing. It's silence. God's not saying anything. God's not near. He's far. And if you hear anything, all you hear from God is the sound of him locking his door, saying, I don't want to talk to you. I'm abandoning you. I'm locking you out. You're out there all by yourself with your questions and your doubts, your existential crisis, that's on you. And C.S. Lewis says, that's what it fe feels like to really be suffering. And so what happened for C.S. Lewis is he inherited order. He entered a season of disorder. And in that disorder, he was able to reclaim the true message of the gospel and say, this is the reordering of the gospel for me. For me, as somebody who has suffering in his life, I don't relate to the problem of pain, the neat and tidy megaphone God. But I do relate to the sound of silence from God. And that's the C.S. Lewis that I want to inherit. That's the message of the gospel that I want to take the baton of. And I'm so thankful that C.S. Lewis did this work of order to disorder to reorder. Because if he hadn't done that work, if he hadn't gone from the problem of pain to a grief observed, I would not have inherited anything from C.S. Lewis. I would have rejected him wholesale. And that's what happened when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. There was all this order. People were waving palm branches at him, laying down their cloaks for him to ride on. And then disappointment and disorder and then Jesus says, no, 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 the cross, what you perceive as disorder, as weakness, as shame, as darkness, is actually a symbol of life. It's the gateway to salvation. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's reorder, kingdom. And so order, disorder, reorder. I want to ask you, what will you pass on? What is the message of the gospel? Maya Angelou 
says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Oh, this is true. This is true. What does the next generation, the future generations after you feel about you and your life and your message, about your church, your Christianity, your Christ? What's the feeling they have? Do you dare to ask? Do you dare to read? Do you dare to step into that reality and confront it head on and say, the gospel I have preached is insufficient, it's small, it's self-serving, it's self-centered. The gospel I actually believe in calls for self-sacrifice, calls for me to lay down my life and preach a pure gospel. I want to conclude with um, this passage. This was Jesus' mission as he understood it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, on this Palm Sunday, this is what we are thinking about, how to be faithful to your mission, how not to continue to misunderstand what you are about as you rode in on the donkey. It's not for political freedom, but it's for the uh, inauguration of your heavenly kingdom. And I pray that our message our mission would be glorifying to you that we may be a planting of the Lord. I pray this for our church in this next season as we think about how to uh, do better as a church, how not to be uh, sort of shriveling under the reality of a culture that's shifting around us, but to confront this reality head on and to accurately represent the gospel of Christ from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith? How do we partake of the redemptive plan of God? God, give us this revelation. Help us to do this. Help us to embody the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.